0: Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. If you like what you hear, please press subscribe. And also, if you could leave a review and rate this podcast, that would be amazing. Um, Thank you to the many of you who have already done that. It means so much to me, and I read every comment. So please review, rate, subscribe, and uh, tell your friends about this podcast. Thank you. Today's episode has been sponsored by Jiggy Puzzles, a female-founded puzzle company with each design created by a female artist who gets a percentage of every sale. Each comes with puzzle glue to preserve it and hang it as art because you don't have enough of your kid's art on the walls. Puzzles have been connected to decreased anxiety, dementia, stress, and improved sleep and memory. Who knew? Get 10% off with code ZIBBY, all caps, Z-I-B-B-Y. Judith Warner is the author of And Then They Stopped Talking To Me, Making Sense of Middle School. She is also the author of the New York Times bestseller from 2005, Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety and was a New York Times columnist for a column called Domestic Disturbances. She is a journalism fellow for the Women Donors Network Reflective Democracy Campaign and a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Her last book was called We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication and it received a 2008 2010 Outstanding Media Award for Science and Health Reporting from the National Alliance on Mental Illness, a 2011 Changing Lives Award from the Parent Professional Advocacy League, and a 2012 Friends of Children's Mental Health Media Award from the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. She was also awarded a 2012 to 13 Rosalind Carter Fellowship for Mental Health Journalism. A former special correspondent for Newsweek in Paris, she hosted the Judith Warner Show on XM Satellite Radio from 2005 to 2007, and in 1993, she wrote a bestseller called Hillary Clinton, The Inside Story, as well as several other books. She's a frequent speaker on American family life, workplace issues and mental health, and currently lives in Washington, D.C. Welcome, Judith. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm so glad to be here.
0: I love this is like a continuation of our our Instagram Live during which I had major technical difficulty so I'm glad that we're doing this again in a different platform so we can get the full story from you.
1: (laughs) You did a great interview anyway so. Thank you
0: and as I told you on that this is such a treat for me because I remember years and years ago going to listen to you speak at my old grade school and just being like in awe of you and now here we are like I don't know 15 years later and still talking so it's really cool for me.
1: Well, it's great for me. And I, again, I'm flattered, flattered by all the nice things you've been saying.
0: So, can you please tell listeners what your latest book, And Then They Stop Talking to Me, is about?
1: And Then They Stop Talking to Me is about making sense of middle school, as the subtitle says. And I quote it only because it really does sum it up so well. And I, can do it without seeming conceited because it was a friend of mine who came up with that wording rather than me. And she said it to me because I was, you know, we had the title and we were just struggling and struggling to have a good subtitle. And she said, yeah, I know I've been listening to all these years, really, when you've been trying to, to, you were caught up in, you know, making sense of it all. And I thought that I literally said to her, like, I got to go, I got to write that down. You know, it was so perfect because there's so much to make sense of in so many different ways. Many of us are haunted by our own middle school memories or junior high, for people who are older and and went to junior high school, or in some parts of the country, they just still use the, the name of junior high school. Those, our memories from that time are so powerful. They tend to be so strong. And for most people, though not all, they tend to be really, really painful. And often people hold on to what happened to them at that time as almost determinative of of what happened later or who they became. And that really fascinated me. I mean, that was the piece that fascinated me for for decades, I mean, way before I was a mother. But there also is this making sense that parents encounter when their kids get to be in early adolescence, which for most uh, corresponds to middle school, and their kids change and life gets a lot harder their world changes too you know sometimes the kids don't change so much as just the social environment that they're in that that changes and generally not in a positive way and parents want to be able to help their kids and they also want to be able to help themselves if they are suffering through it too which was my situation and it's very hard because it's just very hard to have a sense of what's actually going on, or I certainly felt at the time to find something to read that really helps you intellectually make sense of it, as opposed to giving you like a five step how to, which, and those things never speak to me. You know, I always want to understand things kind of on a deeper level. So that's what the book is about answering those questions and hopefully making people feel less alone with the the pain they may either have brought forward from their own experience or be experiencing in the present and also just have a greater sense of understanding and feel like they feel like they have a friend who gets how they're feeling and understands what, you know, the questions they're asking themselves and then can speak to that in an interesting and entertaining way. Well, I think you did that. <laughs> Thank you.
0: I liked how, so there were basically two different sort of goals and functions of the book that you addressed just now, but that were so evident. One is with regard to your own middle schoolers, right? That there are parents out there, like I have two middle schoolers who are picking up this book thinking, okay, this is how I'm going to get my kids to start talking to me. And then there are the people who are just sort of like having a PTSD moment about their own middle school existence that many people, as you point out in the book, haven't even thought about it since, don't like to talk about it, choose not to revisit it. You even mentioned someone in your book who was so flooded by bad feelings they had to go seek treatment after even talking to you about middle school.
1: Right. She was triggered. Her PTSD was triggered. I felt terrible.
0: Oh, well, no. I mean, it's just like, it's a testament to how much you can sort of stuff these bad memories away. And the part that I found compelling of how you introduced even this whole topic is from your own first person experience about it. And that the topic was not, as we said in Instagram Live, it wasn't just your kids not talking to you, it's that you remember girls not talking to you. There's just this one quote I wanna read, one that I'll stop talking. You wrote, I can still remember how it felt, the ground disappearing beneath my feet, not a single friendly face not a word of recognition, much less reassurance. It was like one of those bad dreams where you're shouting and shouting and no sound comes out of your mouth. I felt utterly abandoned and completely powerless. I was in a black hole of pain and it seemed like there was no outside to it. So take me back for a minute to your own middle school experience, which clearly was upsetting enough that now you've written this book to sort of work through your own stuff and then also for your parenting of a middle schooler experience
1: you know, everything that you said about that kind of dual approach is contained in the way people read the title. For me, the title was about that experience that I went through in eighth grade and that I found in my research where I interviewed just so many people about their middle school stories. You know, that's a really typical thing that happens that, that, ostracism that seems to come out of absolutely nowhere, like one day you're fine, and then the next day you come, no one's talking to you, and you don't know why. So many people have that experience. It's very common at that age. And, you know, that was that was the perspective that I thought everybody would bring to the book when they saw the title. But in fact, immediately, as soon as we started having mock-ups of a cover, I realized, because it was a big debate within the publishers, that people were understanding it the other way, that it was about how your kids stopped talking to you. And that was fascinating to me because I didn't anticipate it. And I thought in the end, well that's great because more people, you know, can can relate to it or at least be drawn into it. But I always think it's worth mentioning just in case people think, oh well that, you know, I didn't have that experience. So it's not for me. And yes, the book worked for me personally on both levels. When I started working on it, you know, what sort of compelled me to write it. Was the experience of being a middle school parent, and how painful I found it? I just was miserable. I found I was really angry with the other moms, not with the other kids, but with the other moms, in a way that felt very much the way I felt in seventh and eighth grade. And I knew that something was getting triggered because my reaction was too strong. And it was also, again, it was it was childish. it was it was middle schoolerish in the in the sort of, the form that the emotion took and even it's not so much the way I did act on it, but the way that I wanted to act on it. You know, the things that would come to mind were these really kind of childish mean girl things, which I will say again, I didn't do, but that's how I felt. And I also noticed the moms around me, a lot of them seeming to go into a kind of regression. I mean, you had some who started really dressing and talking like their kids. There were a lot who were really caught up in sort of the swirl around popularity like their kids were. And then there were a lot who were just looking the way I was feeling, looking really pissed off, withdrawing into themselves, sort of holding on to grudges against the other moms. And and I knew about it because at least with one daughter, she was completely out of it. So people would, you know, complain to other people about other people, to me. So I, I knew, you know, what they were feeling and, and why. And in the book, I combine my two daughters into one or protect their privacy, but it's it's harder to keep the conceit going when you're talking. So the working through was from the outset really about that experience, but you are absolutely right. What ended up happening once I started writing, and this complicated the writing a lot, is that I started working through my own experience from 30 years earlier and what I had carried forward into the present. And that was actually... Much harder. It had more of an emotional kick, and it complicated the writing a lot more. It, it sort of would send me off into different tangents. It would bring up a lot of emotion that I wasn't even aware of having, and it even, in one case, I noticed affected me affected me really badly as a as a journalist, as an interviewer. You know, the interviews I did for the book were just amazing. People would talk. I would speak to them usually for two hours. These one on one phone calls. And they would, I would basically get their whole life, you know, wrapped up in that period of time. It was just, they were incredible. But I interviewed a woman who I had gone to middle school with. And we were doing it actually over dinner. I hadn't seen her since the last day of eighth grade. And when I listened to the interview afterwards, I was so embarrassed because I was a terrible interviewer. I kept cutting her off. You know, I kept almost talking over her. I was so nervous that I was like talking a mile a minute and, you know, doing all these bad interview tactics. So you end up with tons of me on the recording. And every time she's about to say something interesting, I get worked up and I cut her off. And I mean, so embarrassing. So it tells you. Well,
0: now I'm afraid to talk because I'm worried you're going to think I'm a bad interviewer. (laughs) I already didn't interview with
1: you and you're not like that at all.
0: (laughs) There was a part in the book where you go visit a middle school, I think, and you start talking about all your own experience with the cool kids and the one girl who's staring down and not talking and you identify right away that clearly she's being shunned right now and you don't know why. And you start opening up not just about journalistic techniques but your own experience. And next thing you knew, every, every kid in the room was hanging on your every word. And that's sort of how I felt reading this book. And I think why it can be helpful for people in all different stages of going through middle school. What was it like when you realized you sort of had that, not power necessarily, but that shared experience in common with people even going through it right then and how much it helped to share it?
1: It was very exciting because I had no plans going into working on this book. To actually interview middle schoolers, and the the main reason was that there are other writers who have written really great books where they immerse themselves in the world of middle schoolers Peggy Orenstein did Linda Pearlstein did and then and then there are others too those are just the you know those are two of my my favorite authors, and I felt like their books were fabulous and and stood, and you know there was no reason to add to that frankly. Also I was really interested in the adult experience. I I you know I write about adults. That's that's consistently what I write about adult ideas, adult behavior and how adults relate to each other kind of through their kids. And I ended up in that classroom in the school you're talking about it was actually a K through 8 private school and I was waiting I was supposed to be talking to the head of the middle school for whatever reason I had to wait and somebody sort of ushered me into a classroom and put me in the back just to have me somewhere, I think. And they were doing this really, it was an English class. They were doing this really boring grammar exercise. And then they started talking about their passion projects. And the teacher, you know, wanted me to talk to them and and sort of share techniques for how they might go about doing their research. And, you know, I had no idea how eighth graders should do their research. I mean, because my techniques were not really... I think relevant for them, but also at that point, it was early on, and I had no idea what I was doing. To be perfectly honest, my life was incredibly chaotic and I was kind of barely making it making it through work-wise. And so I, you know, I said a couple of s- stupid things, and then I just started talking to them about the book to fill the time. And I talked about I just started telling my own story, that story you told about about being ostracized and about how that story had stayed with me after, and it was my main memory, my main memory of middle school generally was, I could remember every instance of victimization. And when I got to be an adult though, and I started trying to write about this, and this you know, way predates just this book, that I started to discover that things were not at all what they seemed, that there was a whole lot I had left out. And they were at that point, really holding on to it because they, I mean, they were sort of <laughs> sitting forward in their seats with their mouths hanging open. And it was amazing because when I looked at that girl who was there, but not there, you know, she was in the classroom, but it was as though she was, I don't know, as though she had like a glass box around her in the, in the sense that everyone treated her like she was invisible and, and she looked like she was trying to shrink into invisibility. I knew exactly how that felt. And though I didn't know what the drama was that had led up to that, I imagined it was something relatively similar. And also, again, these are such common stories I know now. And I didn't get to go any further because the person I was supposed to interview came in just at that point and looked kind of annoyed because I hadn't been cleared to talk to the kids. And I hadn't thought of it, you know, just when I was called to do so. Because for one thing, I was very nervous to do so. It was a classroom with popular kids and... (laughs) And they made me nervous. (laughs) It really changed everything, though. For one thing, I realized, just as you said, like, these stories are actually important. And it is important, if possible, to talk to kids, whether in the course of the research or after, because maybe as adults, if if we can... Maybe we can kind of speed the process of whatever drama is playing out there up a little bit so it comes to a resolution a little bit faster and we spare them some of this pain. And also, you know, the fact that I was saying things were not as they seem, things are not so black and white, that was important for everybody in the room because they think in a very black and white way at that age, parents even more so today in a very black and white way because they want to really rush to their kid's defense and that does not help them. So I do hope now that it is out that there will be opportunities, you know, once, I don't know, once life goes a bit back to normal to speak with middle schoolers, even if, you know, life stays abnormal for a long time. It's, we I do it by Zoom or something because I just feel like it would be helpful. And at the very least, it would be interesting for them.
0: Absolutely especially your findings that people who peak in middle school generally aren't as happy as people who peak later and that the characteristics that make you popular in seventh and eighth grade are not necessarily those that will give you prolonged popularity even or success in life. So I think that when everything seems so important and magnified when you're in middle school, having the perspective that actually research shows that, you know, that girl who's having all the parties This, this might not be, this isn't the be all and end all that this is, there are other things that are more important, things like that. So I think that perspective is also really
1: helpful. I think it's really important. I think there was a psychologist I interviewed relatively early on who specializes in working with girls of that age. And she said to me, or at that age, and, and throughout their teen years, and she said, you know, often the ones who are super popular in seventh and eighth grade get to tenth grade, and the social skills they had that worked for them really, really well at the time, don't are not working for them anymore, and they have kind of a crisis, and they come to me, and I interviewed people who had those stories exactly, and then saw in the in the clinical research, you know, large scale studies that. That bore that out in, you know, slicing and dicing what popularity means in a lot of different ways and looking at the how and why it is that the kind of popularity kids have, if they're in the popular crowd in middle school, doesn't serve them well as they get further on in high school, in college, and young adulthood. And there's a lot we can do for kids. First of all, just that storyline, I think, is definitely interesting and fun for them, you know, for for a variety of reasons. But it gives us the opportunity also to sort of deconstruct the nature of popularity, you know, and what it means. The fact that there are two kinds of popularity that social scientists study. There's the kind where people actually like you, which is the popularity we have in adulthood, I think. And then there's the kind of popularity that comes from having power. And being high status. And that's the kind of popularity that kids care about the most in middle school. And that tends to come with all of these negative side effects. The first kind, it's great. But it's the second kind that that everyone is thinking about when they're, you know, 11, 12, and 13.
0: And of course, we know as parents that when your kid is excluded or hurt or shunned or anything, you feel it as well as they do. And you even said in your book that you learned that, quote, watching your child be rejected socially can be a form of misery that's every bit as bad as being a middle schooler yourself. So in actuality, the pain that we feel as parents is actual, like, legitimate (laughs) legitimate sorrow and, and hurt when we watch it. So having the tools to put things in perspective and help the kids understand their own middle school experience is actually really beneficial to
1: us. <laughs> it is hugely beneficial. And the lessons I learned in the course of writing this book from all of this research that I that I combed through from hearing stories, from talking to people, it even though my kids are by now, of course, well out of middle school, those lessons stayed with me and were really important just for understanding social dynamics in general and coming to peace. And coming to peace with the past because those, I think it actually is more painful to see your child be rejected or excluded or worse, of course, bullied. I'm not talking about bullying because it tends to be a more extreme case and you know, sort of a problem in and of itself. And again, there are other excellent books on that, including one by Emily Bazelon, which is great. I'm talking about the more mundane kind of nastiness and unhappiness. It hurt. I think it could, it, it potentially hurts more than having it happen to you. And the reason is it lasts longer, the pain lasts longer. And also it's happening to the person you love more, you know, than anyone or anything on the planet. And so, and and you're powerless, you know, you can't do anything about it. So that combination just makes it killer. But if you have more both emotional and intellectual tools for dealing with it, it becomes so much easier because you can talk to them about it more productively. You can talk to yourself about it more productively. And if necessary, you can talk to the school or encourage them to talk to the school in a way that is going to be actually useful and hopefully productive, as opposed to making matters worse, which unfortunately we often do, you know, even with the best of intentions. So true.
0: You know, there were a couple moments in the book where you referred to situations where you were kind of staring out at people, but not really seeing them, that you had your head in the clouds or you were thinking about something else or you were zoning out and I just wanted to ask you about those things and because you made some joke in the beginning about how you, that sounds like you and that you just didn't even notice them when people thought you were staring at them in in a mean way. You just were not even seeing them. I was just wondering what that was about.
1: Well, in my opening anecdote, you know, I talk about the ostracism and our homeroom teacher, and this was very unusual for the time because teachers didn't usually get involved, actually set up a kind of, I don't know, confrontation to have us talk it out cuz it was it was so ugly and i can still i mean i sort of painted it in the book and then i can just remember it so well there was a ringleader you know who was really kind of creating the situation and then the followers i mean it's always like this so the followers were sitting in the back she was sitting up front and she was very calmly and sweetly laying out you know why everyone hated me and one of the reasons was that i i thought i was better than everyone else and i looked through people you know, like they didn't exist. And I remember, I mean, I didn't think I was better than everyone else. Certainly, I was actually, I I felt terrible about myself as kids that age often do, especially girls. But the thing of looking through people like they didn't exist, I knew was actually probably true. I wasn't aware of doing it, but when she said it, it kind of resonated because if that was happening, I mean, I don't think at the time, actually, it dawned on me that I was doing it but I didn't deny it. And I thought to myself, unfortunately didn't say, I don't see them. And that's, that's true. I mean, that, and that is a a form of spaciness. You can call it what you will. You could call it mild ADHD or self-obsession or, you know, the, the description for it can be, you know, more or less judgmental and negative, but I, you know, I know now that it's true because someone called me out for it just a couple of years ago. And once again, I wasn't aware of doing it because I was actually about to do a speaking event, very nervous about it, playing out in my mind what I was going to say. And I happened to be standing with somebody I knew and did not say hello, like just ignored him. (laughs) I didn't see him, literally didn't see him. And, you know, the thing about You know, those kinds of behaviors at that age, you need to become aware of how you impact the world, not just how the world impacts you. Otherwise, you just feel like a victim all the time, right? People are angry with you, people are aggressing you, people don't like you, and they are attributing motivations to you, which are not right, you know, very often, certainly in my case. But there was a behavior coming from me that was upsetting other people, and I was completely unaware of it. And I, you know, tell this and share it. One, because a lot of that has to do with, oh gosh, with, with traits, with personality, with, in some cases, mental health stuff, with, you know, with all kinds of kind of mechanical elements of who we are that tend to stay with us throughout our lives that we tend not to be aware of unless someone points it out to us. And if adults can make middle schoolers more aware of their behavior and its effect on others, they'll not only make life easier for the kids and easier for those around them, potentially, but certainly easier for them and make them feel more empowered and less like victims most of the time. But they'll also be setting themselves up later in life not to keep making the same mistakes over and over again. These are social skills. You know, kids need to be taught social skills the same way they need to be taught math, you know, or science. They don't necessarily come naturally. And some of the ones that do come naturally, you know, aren't very nice ones, but they're not going to self-correct. That's impossible. I mean, adults don't even self-correct most of the time. So I'm glad you brought that up because it's something that I think really, really is important. And that case just happens to be my own. I mean, that's the social skill that's lacking in me. It's not necessarily very typical of a lot of people, but there are all sorts of other things that are more typical and you know, that can be fixed pretty easily. So for the parents
0: who picked up this book, whose kids
1: did stop talking to them
0: or who are worried that their kids are going to stop talking to them soon, what advice would you give to that group of readers of yours?
1: I would say the research shows that even if they stop talking to you for a while or start fighting with you all the time or start finding fault with everything you do just seem not, you know, they don't seem to like you anymore. That it doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot and it's not going to last. They're going through what they have to go through. They are at a point in their lives where they are literally biologically programmed to start to withdraw from you and try to figure out who they are, where they fit, what kind of person they're going to be, et cetera, on their own. And they need the space to be able to do that. And you have to be able to tolerate the distress of are doing that without experiencing it as a kind of abandonment. And it's hard not to. I mean, it's really hard for parents themselves to go through that transition where they're sort of, you know, cuddly little kids where they knew everything about their lives and they told them everything, you know, suddenly withdraw and close the door or just become non-communicative or become very unpleasant to talk to. It's painful. And it's really easy to worry that something really, really bad is going on, right? That they're withdrawing because they have some horrible secret or something like that. It's so important to remain calm, to remain the adult, to be cool about it and be friendly too, and be there when they're ready to come back, you know? And when they're ready to talk, to be ready to listen, to not, you know, talk at them and be receptive, you know, be a good listener the way I was not. In that interview that I, you know, embarrassed myself in so greatly, don't interrupt. You know, don't try to push the conversation one way or the other. Ask questions and listen non-judgmentally, and they'll come back sooner. You know, the door will reopen sooner. They'll come back to you. But again, most importantly, it's normal. That's good to know.
0: (laughs) And just one last question. Having worked on this book, and I know you've written other books and Your Perfect Madness was a bestseller and all the rest, what advice would you have on other authors undertaking a big research-type project like this when they are attacking this project?
1: You know, I had a terrible experience in writing this book, which I actually have not talked about publicly before, in that I developed a kind of OCD where I lost the ability to write for a while. I was researching obsessively and rewriting. The worst of it was that I was rewriting basically compulsively without realizing I was doing it. To the point that where at a certain point my editor said she was taking it off the schedule because you know we'd gone back and forth so many times. I felt really insulted because I was like, what is she talking about? She's only read it you know, twice. And then toward the end when I was looking for something, I actually created a folder where I put all of the drafts and all of her responses. And I realized she had read it eight times and I had no idea. So, you know, I would say do not rewrite excessively. Also be a little self-aware with the research Don't Don't, go to a point where you start to drown. But again, this was not a typical experience for me. It had to do with other stuff I had gone through and you know, my brain was going a little haywire. I mean, look, the good side of it is, I have research that I have not seen pulled together anywhere else that's deeply fascinating and that I can pull from when I speak, even if all of it isn't in the book. I would also say, have a really good outline that you're working off of. I normally do for my other books I have a really tight outline, and even if the writing part of the book deviates a great deal from the outline, the research follows the outline, and that means that the research files that I create are well-organized and easy to access. In this case, I was working in a very, well, it was a chaotic environment. I was working in a very chaotic way, and that is partly what made the research so circular often and made the writing kind of chaotic, too because things were just all muddled up together. So I think the best advice that I can give that is that maybe has a more universal application is really have a good outline when you start out. If you end up changing it, fine, but use it while you're doing your research.
0: Excellent. Well, Judah, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you for helping middle school parents, middle schoolers, and every adult who's had... A challenging middle school experience and wants to just take a minute to kind of work through it in their own head. So (laughs) thank you for for all of that and
1: for all your time. Well, thank you so much. You're a wonderful interviewer, which is why I end up telling you things I wasn't planning on saying at this point.
0: Well, that makes me happy. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Thanks. (laughs) Okay. Bye. Bye.
0: Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please don't forget, subscribe, rate, and review this on iTunes. Tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much to Jiggy Puzzles for sponsoring today's episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Get 10% off with code Zibby at JiggyPuzzles.com. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You can always email me at Zibby at ZibbyOwens.com.